Good morning, I'm Pastor Sam, and uh, I'll be preaching this morning, and I'm excited to be preaching from Hebrews 4. So you can go ahead and turn to Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16, 5 through 5 through 10. That's found on page 1707 in your pew Bible. If you're watching online this morning, you can go ahead and pull up your favorite Bible app or go find that Bible on your shelf somewhere and turn to Hebrews 4, verse 4 through 16, and then 5, verse 5 through 10. Or, of course, you can just listen. It will also be on the screen. Before we read the Scripture, let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you open up our hearts, open up our eyes, open up our ears, that we can hear, that we can see, that we can receive what it is that you want to do in us and through us this morning. We love you, Lord. We pray that you minister to us, speak to us, meet us, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16, and then 5, verse 5 through 10. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then chapter 5, verse 5. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what was suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today we continue our sermon series, Letters for Lent. Again, the theme this morning is prayer. A number of years ago, I went on a trip to India as part of my seminary education. It was part of the curriculum that everyone, before they graduate, engage in some sort of cross-cultural educational experience. And so a group of us, 10 of us, landed in the city of Bangalore in January 2009. I don't know if you know where Bangalore is, but it's kind of in the southern part, kind of right in the middle, southern tip of India. And our guide for our trip, his name was JP. JP was the perfect guide for our trip because he was born and he was raised in India, spending half his life there. He spoke the language, he understood the culture, he knew how to navigate the roads, he booked the train ride that we took to the western coast. 
He was able to figure out that bus schedule. And eating dinner at restaurants often involved everyone in the group asking JP, so this menu item, what is that? And is it spicy? How spicy? And, uh, and do you think I will like it? Which JP always responded, yes, I think you will like it. All throughout the trip, JP was able to explain to us what seemed like confusing gestures and practices and beliefs and values. But what made JP an even better guide for our trip was that he had spent the other half of his life living and working in West Michigan. Not only did he understand India, he also understood West Michigan and American culture. Today we dive into a passage uh, from the book of Hebrews that may feel a little disorienting. We're jumping into a line of reasoning where the author is making a case for Jesus as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk more about that in just a bit. But first of all, we're not really sure who the audience of the book of Hebrews is, but it seems to be a Jewish audience who has a very thorough understanding of the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Bible known as the Torah. We also know that this community, according to chapter 10, was being persecuted and even thrown in prison. And so some were starting to turn their back on the faith. They were walking away from Jesus. Knowing these two things about the book, a Jewish audience with an understanding of the Old Testament and a community experiencing persecution helps us understand the structure of the book, which is this. After a short introduction, there are four sections where Jesus is compared and contrasted with key figures in the Old Testament. And in section three of the four, where our passage comes from this morning, Jesus is compared and contrasted with the priestly order and a mysterious figure named Melchizedek. In these contrasts and comparisons, the book of Hebrews is aiming to do two things. The first is to show that Jesus is superior to anyone or anything else. And so Jesus, to this Hebrew community, the author wants to say Jesus is worthy of all their trust and all their devotion. But the second thing that the author is trying to do is challenge the people to remain faithful to Jesus despite persecution. So at the end of each of the four sections in the book of Hebrews, there's a warning given to not abandon Jesus because Jesus is your best and only hope. Now, when we start talking about Jesus as a high priest, that's a little difficult for us, I think, to really wrap our minds around. It's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to understand what a priest is and what a priest does. We're not too familiar with priests, especially in this denomination where we refer to those in full-time ministry as pastors or ministers. But maybe if you grew up in another tradition, Catholic or Orthodox, um, then maybe you're familiar with the term priest. But even then, it's really hard for us to understand what a priest is or what a priest does exactly. So what is a priest? The most basic way to describe a priest is a go-between. In the biblical sense, a priest is someone who stands between God and the people. 
You might think of the role of a high priest like a bridge between two sides that seem apart. A priest stands in the middle, and in my opening story about JP, JP was acting like a priest in some sense. He was able to serve as a mediator or a bridge between two different cultures, spanning the gap. So what does a priest do? How do they act as a bridge? A priest's role was to offer sacrifices to God, sacrifices that would cover or atone for the sins of the people. And so a priest would act as a reconciling presence in a relationship that was broken, bringing the offerings and the prayers before God on behalf of the people, and then from God's side, speaking words of forgiveness and blessing. This seems like a good thing, and it was, but according to the book of Hebrews, there was two problems with the priesthood. The first, and this is a little bit in our passage, but it's kind of in the context surrounding our passage. First, human priests from the line of Aaron. Remember, Aaron was the first priest. Priests from the line of Aaron were themselves sinful, and so they always had to offer sacrifices or they had to make sure their own sins were covered up or covered over before they could act on behalf of the people. And the second one, the second problem with human priests in the line of Aaron was they had this habit of they kept dying because they were human. And so the author of Hebrews makes a point here, a strong one, that Jesus is something more. He is the ultimate priest. Jesus is a priest not in the order of Aaron, the first high priest, but in the line and the order of Melchizedek. It may be a strange argument for us, but the point is simple. Jesus is perfect. He has no need to offer sacrifices for himself to atone for his own sins. And second, he never dies. And so he's eternally available to his people. If you want me to talk more about Melchizedek, I'm not going to. I'm not going down the rabbit hole of Melchizedek. It's a, it's a deep one. And if you want to, you can read Psalm 110 later this afternoon and Genesis 14. That will get you started down the rabbit hole. But instead, I want to spend a little time teasing just one point, one implication of Jesus as the perfect high priest. I'd like to read a couple stories this morning to help us feel the main point, which I'll name near the end of this sermon. The first story I want to read is from a book called Downtime by Mark Iaconelli. I've read some stories by him before. He, for a long time, has worked with youth. He was a youth pastor. And so he tells this story of being a youth pastor, working with youth in his book, Downtime. He writes, I remember a very bright and committed young woman in my youth group who struggled with an eating disorder. Eventually, her condition became so disabling that she was hospitalized. One day, I went to visit her in the hospital. Like many young women who battle with anorexia, Diane was highly accomplished. She was an A student, an athlete, and the leader of many school clubs. She loved to spend her weekends working in various community service groups and was strongly committed to her church and to her faith. 
Until she was hospitalized, she managed to keep her eating disorder a secret. When I went to see her in the hospital, Diane was friendly toward me, but clearly was ashamed to be there. We made small talk for a while and then fell into a long, awkward silence. At a loss as to what to say, I asked her if I could pray for her. Knowing she was a committed Christian, I asked how she was praying during this time. She told me she liked to pray with the Bible, and so I took out my Bible and asked if there was a particular verse I could read and pray with and for her. Without hesitation, she said Psalm 22. Tears came to my eyes as I realized that the words of despair that Jesus turned to on the cross were the best expression of what this beautiful, capable, successful young woman was feeling. I pulled a chair up to the bedside and read Psalm 22. As Diane lay with eyes closed, my tears fell on the pages as I came across verses like, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. I'm poured out like water. My hands and my feet have shriveled. I can count all my bones. Oh Lord, do not be far away. Oh my help, come quickly to my aid. No one suspected this prayer resided in Diane, least of all me. And yet this was her secret prayer. At that time in my ministry, the youth group I led was easygoing with lots of fun and lots of laughter. There had been little room for Diane or other youth to allow the real suffering of their hearts to be heard. Yet it was within Diane's suffering that God called her to prayer. As I left the hospital that day, I made a commitment to make space in my ministry for the suffering of young people. Second story I want to read is from Parker Palmer's book, Let Your Life Speak, where in one section, Parker talks about his struggle with depression, in this case, severe depression. And he writes this, he says, It's odd, it's odd that some of my most vivid memories of depression involve the people who came in to look on me. Since in the middle of the experience, I was barely able to notice who was or who was not there. Depression is the ultimate state of disconnection. It deprives one of the relatedness that is the lifeline of every living being. I do not like to speak ungratefully of my visitors. They all meant well. They were among the few who did not avoid me altogether. But despite their good intentions, most of them acted like Job's comforters. The friends who came to Job in his misery and offered sympathy that led him deeper into despair. Some visitors, in an effort to cheer me up, would say, it's a beautiful day. Why don't you go out and soak up some sunshine and look at the flowers? 
Surely that will make you feel better. But that advice only made me feel more depressed. Intellectually, I knew the day was beautiful, but I was unable to experience that beauty through my senses and to feel it in my body. Other people came to me and said, but you're such a good person, Parker. You teach and write so well, and you've helped so many people. Try to remember all the good you've done, and surely you'll feel better. That advice, too, left me feeling depressed, for it plunged me into the immense gap between my good persona and the bad person that I then believed myself to be. Blessedly, there were several people, family and friends, who had the courage to stand with me in simple and and healing ways. One of them was a friend named Bill, who, having asked my permission to do so, stopped uh, by my home every afternoon, sat me down in a chair, knelt in front of me, removed my shoes and socks, and for a half an hour, he simply massaged my feet. He found the one place in my body where I could still experience feeling and feel somewhat reconnected with the human race. Bill rarely spoke a word. When he did, he never gave advice, but simply mirrored my condition. He would say, I can sense your struggle today. Or... It feels like you're getting a little stronger. I could not always respond, but his words were deeply helpful. They reassured me that I could still be seen by someone. Life-giving knowledge in the midst of an experience that makes one feel annihilated and invisible. It's impossible to put into words what my friend Bill's ministry meant to me. Perhaps it is enough to say that I now have a deep appreciation for the biblical stories of Jesus and the washing of feet. The love that Bill showed, it is a love in which we represent God's love to a suffering person. A love, a God who does not fix, but gives us strength by suffering with us. Amazingly, I was offered an unmediated sign of that love when in the middle of the night, in one of my sleepless nights, during my first depression, I heard a voice say simply and clearly, I love you, Parker. The words did not come audibly from without, but silently from within. It was a moment of amazing grace. couldn't read or tell every story this morning, but I hope those two stories give us a little insight into this point, that we can approach God with confidence because our go-between, our bridge, our high priest, Jesus, knows what it's like to suffer. As far as we know, Jesus never had cancer Jesus never had Parkinson's. Jesus never had an eating disorder or crushing depression. He never had to bury a child. He never had to suffer a miscarriage. 
But in the two stories I read, didn't you get a sense that Jesus was there? Jesus was with Diane in that hospital room in the words of Psalm 22. And Jesus was there with Parker in the person of Bill, who knelt and massaged his feet. Jesus hasn't carried every cross, but he did carry a cross. And so in that sense, Jesus knows the heights and the depths of what it is to be human in this world, what it's like to suffer, what it's like to struggle. Verse 7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Son, though he was, he suffered. Whatever your suffering is, whatever your hardship, whatever is your pain, whatever your sadness, whatever your grief, Jesus knows. And you are not alone in it. Jesus holds you and holds your suffering in his hands. And what makes Jesus just the right person to bring your suffering before God? The bridge between the Father and his people, between the Father and you. Is when the Father sees your suffering in the hands of Jesus, the hands of Jesus have holes in them. Jesus also suffered. And so as verse 16 says, let us then approach God's throne. God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are the high priest who never fails us. Meet us in our, in our weakness. Meet us in our need. Meet us in our suffering and minister to us. We need you. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.